You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So we're going to share in the word this morning. I'm going to ask Joshua and Leah LeFevre to come today. They're going to uh, read from the word of God. We'll be in Genesis chapter 3, but rather than turning there first, I want to invite you to just put your attention on the stage. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So he took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, You are cursed more than all animals, wild and domestic. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat. Until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. 
Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And that is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you. I'm really grateful to Joshua and Leah for their representation of the word this morning. They have read and signed the story of the separation of humanity from God's design. And, and this is part of the creation story. We tend to talk about Genesis 1 and 2 being creation, Genesis 3 being the fall, and that's true. But really, we're learning how conflict came to be, the creation of conflict, and how God responded to it. But in their telling of it, I also want to note that Leah and Joshua represent the fascinating differences among us, the ways men and women, people in general, can be both unique and also in rhythm with each other. Joshua and Leah have shown us how two people can communicate very differently and still work together in, as partners in the work of sharing the story of God. So they just did what Genesis 1 and 2 meant for us to know, that God's design was interdependence, land and water and sky and animals and people, each depending on the other part, so all of it worked together for good. That was the plan. Not that we were created to be in lockstep with each other, not mechanized, but connected in a kinship that completes the work of creation. That's, that's it, really. It's the tangible, sorry, I'm going to say it's the intangible. That, that interdependence is the intangible in the story of creation that completes it. It's that idea that we were designed not to stand on our own, but to be part of the whole. And that is what makes chapter 3 of Genesis such a sad chapter in the, heart of God, in the story of God. God created connection, and out of our desire to do it ourselves, we created competition and conflict. But there's good news even in the story of the fall. And the good news is this. We have a choice. We have a choice. And the story of Genesis, especially as we compare Genesis 1 and 2 with chapters 3 and 4, paints that choice for us as a choice between life and death. So let's look at our options. If you have your Bible, turn it to chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Last week, we walked through the creation story in Genesis 1, and we heard this refrain over and over again. Do you remember I had you look at some paragraphs at the first three words of several paragraphs, and when we, when we saw it kind of coming up over and over again, and God said, we learned that everything exists by the will and word of God. God speaks, and things exist. 
And once things are created, God sees them as good because all that God does is good because this is more important than we give it credit for. God is good. We say it all the time because it's true and it is profoundly important to our story as the people of God. God is good and all the time, the pinnacle of a good God's good creation is us. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 give an account of our creation. And so I want to read this to you again. We were here last week, but I just want to read it again as we kind of jump into this whole business of the fall. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Then God said, there it is again, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this is the partnership prescribed at the point of our creation. Men and women, humans, are blessed to multiply and to care for this creation together, to steward the rest of creation in partnership with each other. It's an important word in our theological vocabulary, partnership. It makes a huge difference in how we understand the intentions of God for humans. Partnership, not hierarchy, is the creation intent. Partnership, the clear hierarchy established in both accounts of creation is the hierarchy of God over humans and humans over animals and land, but not male over female. In other words, men and women are both created in the image of God and both are given the task of stewarding creation. When I talk to groups about what happens when women lead, I always start with this part of the creation story so that they can hear that the differences between men and women or the, and the partnership between men and women and the understanding of how men and women work together is rooted not in some New Testament verses, but all the way back in creation. And I have them do the hand motions. So get your hands out, because I want you to do the hand motions too. Genesis 1 and 2 created a partnership. Genesis 3 made a hierarchy. It's that easy. Now you've got it. And now you can tell people what they, when they say to you, how can you let a woman be the pastor of your church? You can say to them, Genesis 1 and 2 created a partnership. Genesis 3 created a hierarchy. Now give me my Starbucks coffee so I can get out of here. That's what you can do. This idea of partnership is important because that's the big thing that got dismantled when we fell away from our created design. We didn't even make it to page three of the story. Literally, you are not even on page three of your Bible. And we have already messed up. We have already gone from being in partnership and interdependence to being at odds with God and each other and in competition with God and each other. And heartbreaking, really. We get, the, we get the creation of shame in Genesis 3. Heartbreaking. Our mistake was self-sufficiency. The same mistake every toddler makes when they jerk the scissors away from their parents and say, I can do it myself. We were not 
made to do it ourselves, to have all the right answers, to be so fiercely independent that we can't lean on each other. But that's what Genesis chapter 3 describes. It's part of the creation story, the creation of conflict, of antagonism, of competition, of hierarchies, of self-dependence. So now, Adam and Eve, both condemned by their failings, will experience suffering in this life. Adam will fight against the ground as he works it for his existence. Work was not part of the fall, but striving and never feeling like you get anywhere, that's part of the fall. Eve will no longer have a partnership with Adam. Instead, he will rule over her. Look it up in your Bible. Those words are actually used in your Bible, but they are in Genesis chapter 3, not verse chapters 1 and 2. That's how the Bible puts it. He will rule over her. But that's the language of the fall, not creation. And this isn't God's doing. This is our doing. The enemy of our souls tempted us with some lies, and we took the bait. How did it happen? How did we get sucked in so fast? <laughs> I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Those first three verses in Genesis chapter 3, there's a world of understanding there. Genesis 3, 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. The day he was, the, the day, one day he asked the woman, did God really say? I want you to underline those four words. Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit, from any of the trees in the garden? So the serpent is how the writer has chosen to picture the enemy of God. Slithery and poisonous, not warm and fuzzy. But I, that's, that's the being. But I want you to focus on what he said just about everything that's wrong with the world begins with those four words in the form of a question. Did God really say? This is a huge question and a devastating one. This was the enemy introducing the possibility of distrust and dis-ease with God's design and instructions. Maybe God isn't to be trusted you know, if, if, if God isn't telling the whole truth, if he's spinning this, then maybe he isn't worthy of our obedience. Or maybe we can't trust our own take on things. Maybe he didn't really say what we think he said because we didn't hear it right. Weren't smart enough to know right from wrong. Is that what happened? Somehow, the enemy of our souls had to crack the door on trust. And, and it's amazing, isn't it? How, what can happen when trust gets questioned? Did God really say? I want you to remember that all through the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, God comes back to this one simple refrain when talking about everything he touches. Do you remember? First, God speaks and God said. And at his word, things were created and God responds, how? It is good. That's right. Everything God makes, everything he touches, everything in his presence is good. So what is the one thing the enemy of your soul and mind would attack if he wanted to get us to question the core of God's character? He would question what God says. 
Because if he can get us to doubt the word of God, then he can chip away at the character of God. And if he can chip away at the character of God, his goodness, then he can mess with my relationship with God. And that teaches me that sin does not begin with my behavior. Sin begins with where I place my faith. It begins with my relationship with God. When I start to question the goodness of God, I am sliding right out of Genesis 1 and 2 and into Genesis 3. When I have a sin problem, what I actually have is a fundamental issue in my relationship with God, in my faith in Him, and in what He has told me is designed for, his good, for my good. When I doubt that, my trust is gone. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we can eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. And what she says here, what Eve says here, that's Genesis 3, 1 through 3, what she says here is accurate. Genesis chapter 2 mentions a lot of trees. Two of them are mentioned specifically as being at the center of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is the one God tells them not to eat from. They can eat from any of the other trees, including the tree of life. But that one tree was not meant for eating. It had another purpose, actually. You know what that tree grew? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree grew options. Good options and bad options. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But all of those options put the power of choice next to the power of obedience. And it asked us to choose. Well, I choose my own options, or will I choose obedience? Does it make sense? So it wasn't what was on the trees that did us in, or the tree. It was the imperfection in us that turned choice into a greed for self-reliance, autonomy, that idea that we, we, we could actually know better than God, that knowing better might actually be better than loving. Does this make sense? So what I'm saying is that to choose to eat from that tree is to choose disobedience. God told his children, you have a choice here. I will not force you to love me through obedience. You can choose not to obey. But the question we all ask is why? Why didn't God just not make that tree in the first place? So we didn't have to eat from a tree that wouldn't even be there. Wouldn't that have made things so much simpler and so much less hard? The answer is love. God so loved his people that he gave us the power to choose. Listen, free will is built into the foundation of perfect love. God will not coerce. He will not force. He will not treat us like puppets. He has not created slave labor. We are free people with free will. We have the power to choose. And that is fundamental to the more perfect brand of love that is God. So that tree, that tree was God leaving a crack in the door of love. 
Because perfect love involves the power to choose. And for imperfect people, well, that just became too much of a temptation to ignore. We do love our options, don't we? Let me get an amen from you in this room. We love, ooh, we love when the dessert table is full of everything and we can have one of each, just never mind the squash casserole. I'm just going to start at the dessert table. We want all our options. We don't want to just have our cake and eat it too. I want my cake and your cake, your cake, your cake, God's cake. I want all the cake. I want to exploit all the options, but with no consequences. Amen? I mean, how, who's played this game? If you could, if you could or, uh, gain no weight, if you had had no negative consequences to your, uh, to your health, what would you eat? All of it. What would you eat? Yeah. We do that kind of stuff because that's what we want. We want life with, with all the options. But life is not designed to work that way. Whether you love Jesus or not, whether you believe there is a God or not, life doesn't work that way. Once you've eaten all the cake, there's no more cake. Which is to say that a choice to have your cake and eat it too puts you outside the realm of how God has created the world. Friends, the enemy has lied to us by making us believe that a choice to live selfishly will give us unlimited options. That is simply not true. So I want to give you an example from my own life. It's my marriage. And I'm hoping you can hear this example, not as a statement about your marriage and whatever state it exists or your ex-marriage. This is not about your specific circumstances. I'm just using my experience to make a point. And this analogy will break down if you take it too far, so don't take it too far. Just let's try it. Every day, whether I do so consciously or not, I choose to be married to Steve. I choose Steve, both by the things I do, loving and supporting and respecting him and honoring holy boundaries as best I can. And I also choose Steve by the things I don't do. I don't run off and get another husband. Can I choose another husband? Yeah, I can. I have that power. I could choose another husband and leave the one I have. Or I could choose another husband and tell Steve, we have another husband in the house now. How well do you think that would go over? But if I make that choice, does that give me more options or less options? Have I just added another option to the one I already have? No. That choice To get another husband will immediately limit all the options that were available to me before I made that choice. Does this make sense? I mean, even those of you who have just recently married, you get it. Once you're married, you don't get to date anymore. That option is no longer available to you. So I choose Steve every day, whether consciously or not. And some days, it's because I'm feeling all the good feels for this marvelous man that I have married. And some days, it's by sheer obedience to the limits placed on me by our covenant with each other. Steve would say the same thing. 
But I choose Steve because I understand that whatever I have to set aside in order to make that choice, personal preferences, hang-ups and bad habits, other options I could dream up, I choose Steve because I understand that life with Steve, limited by all the options it excludes, is better than life without Steve and all those other options in play. Again, this is not a commentary on your circumstances. This is a commentary on the power of choice as a foundation of any loving relationship, including our relationship with God. God gives us the knowledge of choice because God understands that by choosing, that by being able to choose, we enter into a deeper brand of love than if he had simply taken all the options away. So when we choose God, we choose self-limiting obedience, which means obedience is not slavery, it is freedom. It's the ultimate paradox. Obedience is not slavery, it's freedom. We see it displayed perfectly in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus lived in complete obedience to his Father because he was so completely secure in his identity as the Father's beloved Son. God would say of Jesus, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus would say of his Father, I do nothing except in obedience to his will. That's the relationship we're designed for. And the choice, and yes, it is a choice that gives us entrance into that relationship, is the choice to obey God. To love him is to obey him. Let's say that together out loud. To love him is to obey him. Say that again. To love him is to obey him. To participate in his life is to let him be God. In the ultimate paradox of the gospel, obedience ends up not being a limit, but the supreme mark of freedom. And yet we choose to believe the lie. Look at verse 6, Genesis 3, 6. The woman was convinced. It took her no time at all. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Oh, it just breaks your heart, doesn't it? This is where it happened. So they, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. How incredibly sad. Our choice for disobedience creates so many unintended consequences. I need an amen from the addicts in the room. The saddest of which is shame. That horrifying feeling that we are somehow wrong. That we are not enough. Sean Gladding says, the subtle serpent taps into our deepest anxiety as humans. The fear that what I have, no matter how good it may be, is not enough. The haunting suspicion that someone else has it better than me. That someone else is better than me. So, not only do I not have enough, I am not enough. I am less than. Do you hear that, that hierarchy showing up in there? Somebody else has it better than me. I am not enough. That's why this, this 
Genesis 1 and 2, partnership. Genesis 3, hierarchy becomes important. It's not talking about marriages. We're talking about everything, every relationship. When I start to compare, when I start to compete, I lose the design. And you've got to be some kind of special brand of evil to want that for somebody else. So the story of the fall is so discouraging, isn't it? And it bleeds right over into the next generation. Genesis chapter 4 is all about the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, cutting corners in their obedience to God, making it more about behavior than relationship, finding themselves plagued by the terrible sickness of competition and jealousy. But woven into these two chapters, 3 and 4, is a word of hope. It comes twice, both at the end of chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 3 ends with God looking at the mess humans have made, a mess that excludes them from the garden life. But after God sends them out, and he does, he sends them out from the garden. After he sends them out, the Lord God, this is uh, 3, 22 through 24, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That means to me that God does not intend to, to let life die in this decision his children have made. He is going to guard life. And then at the end of chapter 4 is this line, 426, when Seth, who was another son of Eve, grew up. He had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. In those two verses, I hear such hope. God will not give up on life. God will not give up on life. We're not going to be able to eat directly from that tree anymore, from the garden tree. No, but, but, even messed up, self-dependent people will still find their way to this God who gives life, and they will do it by calling on his name. And what is the name that gives life? You know the answer. This is actually the answer where you say, Jesus. <laughs> what is the name? Jesus. Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He gets us back in front of the tree of life. He gives us the opportunity to eat from that tree. And you have a choice. You have a choice. Eric Weiner uh, has written a book called The Geography of Bliss. It's based on research done by another guy, Adrian White, who compiled the, the, the results of 80,000 surveys taken from people all over the world. It's a pretty simple survey. He asked people, are you happy? That's all he asked them. Are you happy? And then he ranked countries by the relative happiness of the people who live in them. The score of each country is called the happiness quotient. And from the results they designed was called the happiness map. You can look it up. By the numbers, it turns out Denmark is the happiest country on earth, followed by Switzerland, Austria, Iceland, and the Bahamas. 
I probably could not be happy in Iceland, but I bet I could be happy in the Bahamas. We in the U.S. are not even in the top five. We're not even in the top ten. The United States is 23rd. Canada is happier than us. So is Costa Rica. The least happy place is Burundi. But Weiner says Moldova gets his vote for least happy. It's fourth from the bottom, but he says, listen to this, most people in Moldova go to great lengths to see their neighbors fail. Weiner says Moldovans have built a whole society built on a national lack of trust and friendship. I guess you could say Moldova is everything the Garden of Eden is not. You know, in our country, we tend to think of happiness as an individual pursuit. I'm going to do it myself. But it turns out, according to the Garden of Eden, I mean, excuse me, according to Genesis and, and, and what, we, what we see in the Garden of Eden, it's a team sport. We are happiest when we have good relationships and are secure in the knowledge that we're loved which is what our Father has been promoting from the beginning. Happiness happens in the context of relationship. It's not even happiness. It's something deeper. It's peace. Peace happens in the context of relationship. Do you remember there were two trees, the tree of life and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The tree of life holds all the things we really want in this world. We want to feel safe and heard. We want peace. We want a sense of belonging and, and connection. We want to know that we're not alone in this. That is life to you. And that comes through the name. It is Christ running through your veins. Life is to bless people, not curse them. To see yourself as part of a whole, not above it. To love others as much as you love yourself. To have a generous spirit, a kind heart, a desire to learn more than know. If only Adam and Eve had chosen that. If only they had chosen life instead of a deep desire to be understood. Instead of a deep desire to know it all. If only they had, had, had chosen this, this opportunity to make others feel safe in your presence, to be seen, to be heard like they belong, to live gratefully, if, if only. But we still have that choice because we still have the name. So I don't have a great invitation for you this morning. But I do have a question and a piece of information to give you. My question is this, are you happy? Are you happy? I think since about 2020, a lot of us have lived with a, so much more anxiety than joy. This is not the garden solution. Are you happy? Do you know that's available to you? Do you know that joy, Jesus said it, my joy, that my joy might be in you, that your joy might be full. Do you know that is available to you? 
And here's the piece of information that you need. You have a choice. You're not a victim of this life. You're a beneficiary of this life. You have a choice. You have a choice to be other-focused. You have a choice to, to seek to understand rather than to be understood. You have a choice to, to promote belonging and community rather than self-sufficiency and individualism. You have that choice. You have a choice to call on the name of Jesus and to find that he is enough. You have that choice. So what is it for you? Do you choose life or just a lot of information and knowledge that won't get you there? Will you stand? So that's, that's your question today, I guess. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe there's some confession that needs to go with it, places where I have simply, I have, I have made the wrong, I have tried to have my cake and eat it too. I have made the wrong choice here. I have, I have needed so badly to be right that I can't get to the life God has for me. I've needed so badly to have all my options that I can't grab the one option that brings life. I have, I don't know, maybe there's some confession that goes with that for you. Or maybe for you it's just a, a simple, maybe the confession is, God, I'm just not happy. And so I have not been living the life you gave me. I've just not been living it. If you came that I might have joy and have it to the full, I have not been there and I have treated this life as if I'm a victim of it rather than a beneficiary. I don't know what it is for you, but my guess is that if you will open yourself to the Holy Spirit, there is a choice you can make today that will allow you to walk out of here different than you came in. So Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray for my friends just that prayer that we would walk out of here with a different choice than we walked in that we would walk out of here choosing life if you would do that God we would be so grateful we love you Jesus the altar is open for those of you who would like to come and kneel and deal with God here the altar is open if you'd like to turn and pray with someone you're welcome to if you want prayer for anything healing for your relationship with Jesus Anything that's going on in your life that you'd like to have somebody agree with you in prayer over, I'll be right over here. I'll be so pleased to pray with you. You're invited as we worship together. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.